This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. In the next hour, we'll learn how Team Rubicon deploys volunteers to help victims of natural disasters around the world. In the Southeast Territory, I think we have about 15,000 gray shirts. There's about 1,000 in Alabama. The Big Pond Podcast tells us the story of Uncle Wiggly Wings, a U.S. soldier who brought joy to children in Germany during the Cold War. The kids were all over the place and waving to me. And so we had a real purpose to see that they got enough to eat by air alone. And it was incredible to be part of that. We'll also talk about sustainable energy and why solar power is a losing proposition for homeowners in Alabama. If you're a homeowner, the way it's currently structured by both TVA and Alabama Power, you can't make money. They have made it such that you will lose money uh, intentionally. That's up next on the Public Radio Hour. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville with our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katie Ganaway with Brett Tannehill Producing. This week, WLRH Community Newsroom producer Dan Paulus talks with Daniel Tate of Energy Alabama about our state's progress, or lack thereof, with sustainable energy. Among other things, we'll learn why solar power for homeowners is a losing proposition. Also, October brings lots of incredible bicentennial events to the Tennessee Valley. Sally Warden drops in to share an update. And we find out what it really means to be a Team Rubicon first responder, preparing for natural disasters and helping victims pick up the scattered pieces of their lives. But first, we bring you a special program from the Big Pond Podcast. Here's the story of one U.S. soldier known for his sweet bombs at the start of the Cold War. He earned the nicknames of the Berlin Candy Bomber, the Chocolate Flyer, and Uncle Wiggly Wings. This is the Big Pond. It's a sunny Sunday afternoon in Berlin. I'm on the bus. Next stop, Tempelhoferfeld. Now this is our stop. Yes, are you Mr. Michigan? Quite a few people get off. I'm walking with Wolfgang, an 81-year-old Berliner. He's wearing a Michigan cap. We are heading to the Fest der Luftbrücke, the Berlin Airlift Festival at the former Tempelhof Airport, a celebration of freedom and liberty, 70 years after the end of the Berlin blockade. Wolfgang tells me in those days, in 1948, when the planes landed at Tempelhof Airport, there was a certain amount of anxiety. The Germans feared the Allied pilots, and the pilots feared the Germans. They had been enemies, and now the Germans were servicing their aircrafts, and friendships were developing. Wolfgang Leuke is one of over two million people who lived in West Berlin during the Soviet blockade. The blockade was one of the first tests of the Cold War, and 2019 marks 70 years since the end of it. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. I'm Nikki Matzen. And I'm Sylvia Cunningham. In this episode of The Big Pond, we learn about the Berlin airlift from the people who lived through it. It's a story that brought hope to a struggling city in ruins— when West Berlin became isolated from the rest of West Germany, like an island floating 100 miles inside of Soviet-controlled East Germany. 
It's a story about bringing happiness to children, coming of age at a time of war. It's also a story of an amazing feat in history, creating first in aviation, and a turning point between former enemies who began working together in massive coordinated teams to save two million people from starvation. This is the story of the Berlin Airlift. At the Allied Museum in Berlin, I'm getting a history lesson from curator Bernd von Kaska. We're headed inside an original British Hastings plane parked outside the museum. All right, entering the plane. Wow. You can't smell it, but we can. Uh, <laughs> if you're in here, uh, still after 70 years, you can smell the old oil and uh, the charm of an airplane from 1948. And what did this plane transport? Uh, this was uh, transporting cargo, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, also this plane was used for transporting coal. In 1948, Berlin was a divided city. The east was controlled by the Soviets. The west was occupied by the Allied troops, with sectors for the French, the Brits, and the Americans. On June 24th, the western part of the city was officially cut off by the Soviets, and the Allied forces had a decision to make. Here's archival footage from the United States Air Force. Russia had been slamming the doors to the city. They cut road traffic, then rails, then barges. So America, Britain, and France decided to supply the city by air to keep freedom's door open. Some experts called it an impossible task. More than two million Berliners prayed it wasn't. Within a month, 159 U.S. aircraft were delivering 1,500 tons daily. It gave the people hope. Additional American and British Historian Bernd von Koska says the, the Berlin blockade was, was the first confrontation of the Cold War. And this first confrontation was uh, solved without uh, guns, without the atomic weapon, without uh, fighters in the air. It was solved by logistics, it was solved by flying lorries. West Berlin authorities made lists of what the city needed, and it was up to the combined airlift task force to sort out the logistics, how they would distribute thousands of tons of vital supplies like coal and food into the city every day. And, and keep in mind, everything was done without computers, without mobiles, uh, all this calculation, everything that's very essential for us nowadays uh, was done all by hand, uh, manual. I've seen people on huge lists, they needed ladders to keep these lists updated uh, because those lists were so long. Really? Yeah. During the Berlin airlift, the Allies worked out of three airports. Tempelhof, West Berlin's main airport in the American sector, Tegel in the French sector, and Gato in the British sector. The operation reached its peak in April 1949, when nearly 1,400 flights landed in 24 hours. That's roughly one airplane every 62 seconds, a rate von Koska says even today some airports in major cities don't reach. Um... Where was this plane before 1997, before it landed in the Allied Museum? Oh, it was the gate guard of the Royal Air Force in Gatau, Berlin. And when in 1994 the three Allied powers withdraw from Berlin, they closed uh, the British uh, military airport in Gatau, and they handed over this plane as a present 
to the Allied Museum. And we were glad to receive this present, but then we discovered the problems to get it from Gato to the Allied Museum. <laughs> and finally we had to chop off the wings and had to hire the biggest transport helicopter in the world, which is ironically a Russian Mi-26 coming from Kiev to transport the symbol of the Allied Airlift into the Allied Museum. Wow. The Allied Museum's permanent exhibition pays tribute to the heroes of the Berlin Airlift, preserving their personal photos and trinkets from the city where they left their mark. On May 12, 2019, a ceremony at the Platz der Luftbrücke remembered the people who lost their lives during the Berlin Airlift. Beyond the Allied troops, Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa were involved in the effort. Veterans and their families came to Berlin for a weekend of commemorative events. What's your name? David Carsey. And you were part of the airlift 70 uh, years ago. Yes, 70 years ago, yeah. What, what are your memories or what do you remember Ooh, most? Working hard, busy, yeah. I was in the control tower at the uh, ghetto in the signal section working on a mosque you know, taking, taking and receiving messages. Uh, I was 18, I think 19, 18, yeah. You were very, very yeah, young so. then. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But uh, oh, we enjoyed it really. <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were part of something very it's special. Worth, worthwhile, yeah. 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 And it, is this your daughter? daughter, daughter yeah. 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 We're very honored to be here. It's yeah. absolutely fabulous time we're having. <laughs> I, and are you proud of your father? Oh, very much so. Absolutely, yes. He just had his 90th birthday. Can you say your name? Oh, Al Jeeves. Jeeves. And so you were involved in the Berlin area? Oh, Gatow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 18 at the time. Yeah. Like He's 90 but... now. <laughs> 90. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going yeah. to get him to write it all down, I think. Yeah. I don't think people like myself were really aware of what these people did. And um, because they don't talk about it very much at home. It's just something that they did. And then for me to be here now and go through this with my father-in-law is just incredible. And, and you know, I, I just admire them all so much now. I have a greater understanding of, of what actually took place. And uh, that's, I, I want to keep that going, you know, because we've got a granddaughter now and I want her to know about her great-granddad and, and things like that. And just carry on. Cause it's just amazing. Amazing. At the ceremony, there is a special guest of honour, a 98-year-old American pilot. His sweet, spontaneous act of kindness during the airlift captured the hearts and attention of people worldwide. We're grateful to be here. God bless you. I'm honored to be a son of Berlin. Berlin is my Zweite Heimat. Danke. He received a standing ovation from the crowd after his remarks. And I had the chance to speak with him here in Berlin. I'm Gail S. Halverson, the Berlin candy bomber. As a young pilot, it wasn't easy for Colonel Halverson to come to Berlin. Like many others... He had lost people dear to him during the war. I had I taught one of my best friends to fly before the war, joined the Army Air Corps, sent to bomb Berlin. 
<coughs> they killed him. Truman always felt that I had a hand in that, that I got him started flying. Despite those feelings of animosity and regret, Halverson signed up to join the airlift. The people of West Berlin were starving. He remembers the shock he felt when he flew over Berlin for his first airlift delivery. And I just couldn't get over from the air. It looked like a moonscape down here. Just almost all buildings had damage, roofs empty, roofs up to the sky. I had uh, flown during the war, of course, and seen different places, but for a city to be bomb marked all over the streets and uh, houses ripped apart still at that time. So it was um, an eye-opener for me to see how the city was almost destroyed, but rightfully so, because of the uh, things that Hitler had done. So it's, uh, it's not a very happy time. War is not. Uh, it affects people, whether they're in the front lines or at home under a bombing target. The devastation all throughout Berlin wasn't the only thing he noticed. At Tempelhof Airfield, German children flocked to the fence to watch the plane's landing. They were curious and polite. Some even thanked the pilots in their broken English. They didn't ask for anything. Halverson reached into his pocket and gave them the only two sticks of gum he had. And then he watched. There must have been about 30 children at the fence, he recalls. But they didn't fight. They just happily split the gum into smaller and smaller bits and passed them around. And when that wasn't enough, they passed the wrappers around so that each child could enjoy the scent. The kids were all over the place and waving to me and, and just for being vanquished and by terrible war. And the, the, the Russians were a bigger threat than, than anything. And uh, they, they want to stay free. And that, the desire for freedom is so universal in the human spirit. And those kids didn't want anything to do with the Soviet system. So we had a, a real purpose to see that they got enough to eat by air alone. I, I enjoyed it. It was incredible to be part of that. And how did you feel the first time you wackled your wings and dropped parachutes with candy in them and saw the kids running after them? Well, it was about uh, three or four days after I met them at the fence. And I told them that's what I do. They said, how do you know which airplane to watch? We got to know which one to watch. I says, wiggle the wings and uh, watch the airplanes on the approach. When I'm wiggling the wings, that's me. Get ready for it. And they said, that's a good idea. Let's get started. So they, they were all up for it. And I bought, bought enough chocolate and gum. And, uh, I, I could have rationed. And I got about all I could. And got my buddies to buy some. And, Came back the next day and was clear and came over the field at first and wiggled the wings. And those kids went crazy. And they watched me every step of the way. And, uh, well, they didn't have any candy, you know. They didn't have anything like that. Such a luxury item. Yeah. And then to see it come out of an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I bet word spread quickly. Yeah, it did. And the kids would... uh, line up on the approach to the airport, waving like mad. So we did it again and again. Crystal Jung of Voss was one of those kids who went to Tempelhof to watch the Berlin airlift planes coming in. She was 11 years old at the time. 
We reached her at her home in Oregon. We had heard about the Schokoladenbombe, the chocolate bombe, uh, Wiggly Wings, and sure enough, we were able to see Gail Halverson wiggling his wings and dropping little parachutes with chocolate. I never caught one. The boys were always faster. But this was of no importance to us. Important was that at that time there was someone who cared. That someone cared. It's a sentiment that many of the children who lived in post-war Berlin remember feeling because of the airlift. Like Roswitha Berry, who was seven years old. You know, it wasn't just the candy bombing. It was that the Americans were there to save us. And, um, and the British and the, the French and, of course, other allies helped. But it, was, it wasn't until then that we felt that we have a chance because we grew up in ruins. It's, it's hard to think about it because uh, um, so at that time I didn't know any different. And it was fun. But when I look at it now and I see the films and I say, how did I ever survive that? See, those kids didn't have any. When all the sky came a whole ton of chocolate bars on little parachutes. It was a thrill. And the letters started to come immediately. And they said, well, uh, we, we didn't participate in the war. We, we had to be here. My aunts and uncles, dad and mom were all involved in the war effort, but I'm glad that you help us kids now afterwards. It wasn't their fault what happened. Absolutely not. They're thank you letters. Like a a little ray of hope as well. And maps. And maps. Most all of them drew maps. German kids (laughs) can draw great maps. (laughs) And when you come down the straight zone, so turn right two blocks. I live in the corner in the backyard. I'll be there every day at 2 o'clock. Drop it there. And I, I'd try to do it. Where, of course, with that many airplanes, you couldn't deviate the flight path too much. It was quite an operation. It oh, yeah. Every yeah. few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it, it was worth it. The appreciation. Appreciation is a factor that can change lives. Of course, the chocolate for children is always great. But it was more for us that they were there to save us because we understood as young as we were that we wanted our freedom and to have that we needed the allies to do it for us even so Germany had lost the war but uh, I met one of the pilots eight years ago in Ogden, Utah and uh, us Berlin kids surprised their veterans at their yearly meeting and they couldn't believe it because they stood with the Berlin flag and the Hershey bars and they said we bombed, first we bombed them and then we fed them. And they said it was easier to feed them than bomb them. And they never realized, it, never thought in their lifetime that they would meet the children that they saved. And so airlift veterans are very, very special to us. And we make sure that we always do something for them. My name is Vera Ella Mitrich von hamstorf Runa. I can remember very good. I was just five years, six years old. But it was so just amazing. I live in the American sector, Friedenau and yeah. Steglitz, where all the Americans are coming. And when Gail come with the aircraft, you know, he makes this and we know he's wriggling, the wings. wriggling and the candies are coming. 
and I love Hershey chocolate and it, it's so great and I'm very thankful and my mom she was also very happy and she let me know and she said to me Vera may, she had a vision Vera maybe one day in a day you can say thank you and now I can I'm so proud of you all I'm so thankful and uh, I, I must stop uh, and God bless you all, Vera from Berlin, Germany. I'm so proud of you all. Thank you. To this day, the Berlin Airlift is considered one of the world's greatest humanitarian efforts. But it wasn't without sacrifice. At least 78 military personnel and civilians died in the effort. On May 12, 1949, the Soviets lifted the blockade and allowed supplies to begin flowing again into West Berlin. The storytellers of the Berlin Airlift are becoming fewer and fewer. But there's a message that carries on. As Colonel Halverson often says, from small things can come something great. For The Big Pond, I'm Nikki Motzen. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. And I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. Wunderbar together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute. Gail Halverson is alive and well, turning 99 years old this October. According to the Daily Herald in Chicago, the military vet is looking to build the Gail S. Halverson Aviation Education Center. No opening date has been set. The center will be an aviation and STEM youth education facility located in Utah, Galverson's home state. Details at thecandybomber.org. Next up on the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville, when it comes to sustainable energy, Alabama has a lot of room for improvement. We're lagging behind other southern states in the development of these money-saving, job-creating technologies. But why? WLRH Community Newsroom producer Dan Paulus sat down with Energy Alabama's Chief Operating Officer Daniel Tate to find out. Tate says the goal is to get Alabama to 100% sustainable energy, but it turns out we have plenty of work to do. In Alabama, right, solar in terms of renewable resources is probably, I mean, we all know this, right, hot Alabama uh, summers, we, we deal with it all the time as our most abundant renewable energy resource. Um, and then, of course, you know, the cheapest energy is that which you don't use, energy efficiency and conservation. And Alabama has just not really ever taken this issue seriously. Um, and, and why is that? Is there some political aspect to that? Is there some um, kind of laissez-faire that it's it's always been nice enough, except when we have that extreme weather and we deal with that, and move on? Or yeah, it's a little bit. Well, it's a little bit of that, but it's primarily, I would say, not just political. It's not really a political issue of like a left and a right. It's a political issue in terms of like money and politics, right? So we have in Alabama, um, depending on where you live, you have one utility company. It's either you know your local utility company, like say Huntsville Utilities, supplied by TVA, or you have Alabama Power. Uh, or an electric cooperative supplied by Alabama Power. So you have limited to no choice. We have uh, monopoly utility companies uh, that, especially in the case of Alabama Power, contribute heavily to political campaigns and things like that. And so they have a vested economic interest in keeping the status quo 
as locked down and as status quo as possible. For their rates and their income. Uh, right. Now, so, is this different in other states, though? I mean, are we behind in this regard compared to some states that have, have more options for energy and more ways to time. plug into the grid? Oh, yeah, so, big so time. expand I mean, on that a little bit for us. Well, it, and this is, I think, what hurts me the most, right, is that I grew up, as did most Alabamians, raised on a phrase called, thank God for Mississippi. And, <laughs> you know, in the line of work that I do here with sustainable energy, that's just not true. Like Mississippi is even, you know, surpassing Alabama. And you, really? You, you look at what's happening around the country, you see a lot a lot of things happening with the, the cost declines of renewable energy, energy efficiency and battery technology, a lot more choice where, where people are just taking it into their own hands and saying, you know, who need who needs those folks if they're going to hold me back. But then you also see uh, other other governments, state governments, and, and even in the case in the South, right, like we have governments uh, like, say, Georgia here in the South, where you have uh, a public service commission that has all five Republicans. It's a red state, just like Alabama, but making significant strides uh, in specific to solar uh, compared to us. I mean, they just approved over four or two gigawatts of solar, I'm sorry, uh, just earlier this year. Uh, which way more than we have here in Alabama. So it's not just a politics thing because we see just this massive growth in other areas of the country in both red states and in blue states and red districts and blue districts because the economics are there. What has held us back in Alabama has been you know, frankly, getting those vested interests out of the way and getting kind of some of our rules and regulations, uh, uh, effectively getting some of the government out of the way uh, in order right. to let the you know more a more free market actually occur. You know, if we if we really do care about free markets, then if we can get some of those restrictions out of the way, we can make some progress. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, if I'm a consumer, I think I've got a lot of ideas in my head of how much it costs to install solar and what what kind of real savings I'm going to see. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? If people are open to the idea of sustainable energy, they might not have all the information yet. Are we at a place yet where once you install this type of opportunity, your service, whatever it may be, you're going to see a real impact in your wallet quickly? Or are we still in early adopter stage where people have to get on board and figure out a way to, to balance you know, different, different ways they get their energy? Yes. The answer is yes to all of the above. And I want to take it step by step okay. with the different buckets of technology of things that you could do right now that would have a positive impact on your wallet. Great. First and foremost is energy conservation and efficiency. That always makes sense. Using less energy or being smart about how the, ener- you know, the energy that I'm going to use in my home, my business always makes sense. That's less that I have to buy from the utility. Right. And I've got to mention people, especially in the Huntsville area that are very tech savvy, are adapting to the different automated home systems to help them do that better, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Things like that are, are, you know, technology is push, pushing that forward and people are starting to adopt it. Uh, and so those things are almost always cost effective. Uh, when we talk about things like even electric transportation, right, those things are changing very, very fast. Electric cars actually have lowered most of them, except for maybe some of the most expensive Teslas you can buy, right, have lower cost of ownership, total cost of ownership than any other uh, you know, internal combustion engine type of vehicle. Um, now, they may have a slightly higher sticker price, but over the lifespan of that vehicle, you're going to save money because there's just less moving parts, no oil changes, things like that. When it comes to renewables, um, the answer is, well, it depends. And, you know, as with all of these things, you know, I've kind of harped on policy a little bit. It, it depends on the policies that we have in the state and also the, the position of our utility companies in terms of what are they going to allow you to do? So in the case of, of say, solar specifically, if you're a homeowner, the way it's currently structured by both TVA and Alabama Power, you can't make money. They have made it such that uh, you will lose money uh, intentionally. Now, that's not the case in most other states where you're fairly compensated, not penalized for doing things. So you're Uh, saying just by adapting, 
it's not a win-win for you because the the cards are stacked against you with the policy and, and yeah, the specifically and the, the, for solar the monopoly yes. so far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. specifically yeah. for solar that yeah. is definitely the case okay. and becoming more so the case even for things like energy efficiency where you see utilities trying to raise fixed fees uh, that charge you more money regardless of how much energy you use um, and so that that starts to eat into any savings that you could accrue right by you know installing more efficient lighting or weather stripping and things of that nature so uh, again everything is based in policy in the sense that we have to have the right policies and procedures and rules on the gr- on the ground game so that people can make good economic decisions that help them and help our larger economy. Okay. Um, so Let, yeah. let's let's talk about the role business can play then a little bit. Um, you know, you're an individual consumer, you own your own home, you might be inclined um, for different reasons, uh, climate concerns or just you like the idea of sustainability. But what about a bigger enterprise like a business? Are you seeing them move more towards kind of a lead design structure or more of an integrated and thoughtful approach as it relates to sustainables in this area? Oh, yeah, big time. And so, you know, when we think specifically about the business community, everything I just said about how solar doesn't pencil uh, specifically for homeowners uh, or residential does not apply for, oh. for companies, right? Because companies that have much larger uh, electric demand, right, they, they can actually just use a lot of that energy on site and then just buy less from the utility. And so we see a lot of companies looking at at solar uh, as a very cost-effective resource, you know, paying back two, three to five years uh, here in the North Alabama area because that's a good economic decision that they can make, so their business does that. Uh, now we also see, you know, you mentioned lead construction. We have some of the most lead, uh, some of the most uh, highest number of lead certified and Energy Star certified buildings in the North Alabama area than anywhere else in the state, and that is uh, in large part due to you know the techiness, right, of, of right, Huntsville right. and some of our defense contractors really pushing the the envelope. Um, and so you also the third thing you see that's changing the that's changing. Uh, the environment here uh, is that you have companies like Google and you have companies like Facebook that are coming in to companies like Huntsville Utilities or TVA or Alabama Power and saying, no, you don't understand. I have a 100% sustainable energy target and I'm going to hit that or I will not operate in your service territory. And so you see that kind of larger business uh, mentality force the utilities to actually start to change some of their policies and procedures in order to attract that business and those jobs to the valley. Well, that's very exciting. I mean, we could talk for hours about this, like I said, because there's so many pieces to it. To take us out, I mean, what is kind of the call to action to the work that you're doing? How can people get involved? They want to just know more about this and really better understand the options and feel like they're doing what they can um, to help move the ball forward. I would say definitely get connected with us. I mean, we're happy to help. You know, we're a nonprofit organization, and we're really trying to push the envelope here uh, to increase efficiency, renewables, and electric transportation here in Alabama. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of other organizations that are doing great work, but uh, you should get connected with all of them and try to find areas in, in your community of people who are, are trying to push that ball. I mean, think about the, the policies that, again, we need to support in the state of Alabama, asking your elected representatives at the state level, your state house and state senate levels to support Uh, more sustainable energy, more free market uh, opportunities that you have choice uh, in your home or your business to be able to make. That was Energy Alabama's Chief Operating Officer Daniel Tate talking with community newsroom producer Dan Paulus here on the Public Radio Hour. This is 89.3 member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host tonight, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill Producing. Alabama's bicentennial celebration continues, and October has some amazing community events that are sure to educate, inspire, and entertain. 
Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee Executive Director Sally Warden sat down with Brett Tannehill to give us an update, and she also brought some presents for you. You know, I think October may be the biggest bicentennial month yet, kicking off with the entire month uh, being Huntsville History Month, sponsored by the Huntsville Convention and Visitors Bureau. On October 5th, it's the Madison Street Festival in downtown Madison as the city of Madison celebrates its 150th birthday. That's right, an old favorite, the Madison Street Festival. Great family event, but this year a special edition because it's Madison's 150th birthday. So also on October 5th, uh, we have the Lawler Mooring Madison County Bicentennial Farm Recognition Ceremony. Mm -hmm. That happens at Constitution Hall Park at 1.30 on October 5th. Sally, what's that all about? Well, that's a mouthful to say, but really what it is, is this farm, this family-owned farm in the Ryland-Brownsboro area, has been designated as an Alabama Bicentennial Farm by the Alabama Department of Agriculture and the Alabama Historical Commission. That means that the farm has been in the same family for at least 200 years of ownership by the same family. So the Heritage Quilters of Huntsville have a big event coming up October 11th and 12th. It's the Huntsville Fanfare Quilt Show at the VBC's East Hall. And we've done some PSAs for the Heritage Quilters in the past. And this is something that's a pretty big deal. It is huge, as a matter of fact. They were one of the very first organizations to get a bicentennial endorsement. This is an every-other-year quilt show, and it will be on October the 11th and 12th at the VBC. They're going to have over 200 quilts of all sizes And not only will they be showing quilts, they'll be demonstrating it, and there'll be quilt supply vendors there. They do these quilt shows every year to promote and advance the art of quilt making. So a new publication is coming out, a new pamphlet uh, from the Historical Huntsville Foundation, um, helping uh, encourage people to get outdoors and experience history for themselves. It's the Finding Huntsville Walking Tours. Uh, that's on October 2nd and October 19th from 10 to 11, starting at Harrison Brothers Hardware. Yes, and let me tell you a little bit more about Finding Huntsville. What that is is a free publication of the Historic Huntsville Foundation that's a scavenger hunt of historical architectural features on five iconic buildings in downtown Huntsville. This is a free publication. You can find it at uh, Harrison Brothers and uh, a walking tour that those days will be a guided tour on the 12th and the 19th, but you can take it anytime you want to and take a walk around downtown looking at architectural features. See what you can find. And if you want to head up on the mountain to Burrett on the Mountain on October 19th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., it's Burrett's Bicentennial Bash. That's right. We are going to have a great time up on the mountain learning about Alabama history. We're going to test our knowledge on the Trivia Trail Challenge. There'll be Alabama-themed crafts, and they will also have Alabama folk art displays and demonstrations in the park. So Triana has been in this little monthly uh, bicentennial update that we've been doing, uh, Sally. And once again, they're in the mix again with the Town of Triana's Bicentennial Festival. That's October 19th. Not only is it the 200th birthday of Alabama this year, it's Triana's 200th birthday. And this is going to be their official historic festival. There will be a car show and music displays. It'll be a great time in downtown Triana. One of the biggest events 
events. I think one of the most popular and well-known events uh, here in the Rocket City happening October 20th. It's the Maple Hill Cemetery Stroll. That's October 20th from 1.30 to 4.30. Did you know this event is one of the largest living history strolls in the nation? There are going to be over 75 costumed characters and a few new ones this year to highlight some of the uh, some of the early Huntsville uh, residents that were instrumental in forming the state of Alabama. Sponsored by the Huntsville Pilgrimage Association, and it's free, but donations are accepted. So tell people who, who have never been uh, on this particular stroll or don't know what Maple Hill is, what what happens with this? Well, you know, Maple Hill is a beautiful cemetery downtown off of California and McClung, and there are costumed characters standing all throughout the cemetery telling their stories in costume. It's like living history, storytelling. And you just stroll along from from gravesite to gravesite, uh, listening to them tell the stories, and it comes alive. History really comes alive. The Madison Rotary Club gets into the mix on October 26th. It's Volks March of Madison. That happens in downtown Madison uh, once again October 26th from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. And this is going to be a spectacular event. Last year they did a Volks March about the same time of year, sort of as a test. This year it is bigger and better. They have probably 10 partners that they have partnered with. They'll be showcasing Madison's historic and business districts, and along the way historic reenactors and musicians are going to provide entertainment. This is going to be super, and it's free. So this looks like a really fantastic and unique event coming up October 28th um, at 6.30 p.m. The Huntsville Area Association of Realtors is hosting something called the Rocket City Civil Rights Driving Tour. This looks fantastic. It is going to be fantastic. The Rocket City Civil Rights Group is a 501c3 that has been promoting Huntsville's story in the civil rights movement. You know, we have a unique story, and their their mission is to get that story out to understand how Huntsville participated in the civil rights movement. Sonny Herford IV, who was one of the four African-American students to integrate the Huntsville City Schools in 1963, is going to host this virtual visit to the places and buildings associated with Huntsville's civil rights movement. It is an app that you can take, either look at it on your on your phone, or you can actually get in the car and drive it. But they're going to be a presentation to tell about it, uh, Rocket City Civil Rights Driving Tour. And as we mentioned, it's Huntsville History Month all through the month of October. And over our good friends over at Alabama A&M at the Alabama A&M Library, helping celebrate that with the P.H. Polk Photography Exhibit. And that's at the Alabama A&M Library. That's right. You can visit the work of this acclaimed African-American photographer depicting early 20th century African-Americans. From George Washington Carver to the farm workers of rural Alabama, that will be at the Alabama A&M Library the entire month of October. So, Sally, uh, you brought us some great events, but you also brought us some other things. Uh, You brought us uh, this neat Finding Huntsville book, which we mentioned just a moment ago. uh, And folks will try to have some copies of this also available here at WLRH. And there's this neat foldout. Tell us a little bit about this historic Huntsville street names. That's right. If you've been driving around downtown Huntsville any time since about June, you may have noticed that there's some special signage on some streets downtown. There are white signs with the bicentennial logo on them. 
those mark the original streets of Huntsville. Unlike many other cities in Alabama, we actually have almost our entire street structure the exact same as it was back in 1819 when uh, the state was formed. This is a brochure that uh, has been put together telling the story behind those streets, Gates, Williams, um, and those street signs that are put up were done by the city of Huntsville's Transportation Department. Yeah, this is really cool. It has the origins of the street names, and it has the street names broken down into a grid, and then it has a color-coded key that uh, breaks down the streets as they're named after Revolutionary War generals, U.S. presidents, U.S. vice presidents, statesmen, and governors of the Mississippi Territory back in those days. That's right. You know, Lincoln Street is one of those streets, and everyone probably thinks that's for Abraham Lincoln, but the truth of the matter is Abraham Lincoln was one year old back in 1819, (laughs) and that uh, Lincoln is uh, General Benjamin Lincoln, who was a Revolutionary War hero. So folks, we'll have some of these uh, here at WLRH for you to stop by and pick up. And also, Sally, I'm, I'm going to pick up this other neat thing. And if you can hear this, folks, uh, she brought a bag full of commemorative doubloons, coins. I what, don't know if doubloons these? is the right word well, for it. They I'm are from coins. New, I'm from New Orleans. So are, to me, this looks like something, something you know. Something we throw from yeah. a parade float. Well, this is pretty cool. uh, some, some coins that were made up by the State Tourism Department that has the Alabama seal on one side. On the other, the Alabama 200 Bicentennial logo and Governor Ivy's signature. But they are commemorative coins for folks to have something to put in your drawer or your pocket to remember the Bicentennial long past 2019. So if you'd like to pick up one of these coins or the historic Huntsville Street Names brochure or maybe this a neat Finding Huntsville book, you can stop by WLRH uh, and pick those up. They're also available at the CVB and some other places around town. That is correct. And usually at any any of these things we've talked about today, uh, I will be there at most of them and have a table set up or a booth at festivals. I'm handing all these things out. So, Sally, let's just look ahead. We've been celebrating the Bicentennial for several months now. But it is like starting to draw to a close. In December, it's the actual birthday. So can we look ahead? Was it December 14th? December I think? the 14th. And actually, there will be some activities taking place in downtown Huntsville that day. As I've said before, think kids, balloons, and cake. So as we continue to celebrate uh, the Bicentennial with Sally Warden stopping by to inform us of events, let's put that on your calendar, uh, dear listener. December 14th, that is the actual 200th birthday, and we hope that you will help us celebrate when the time comes. But until then, there's a lot to do and there's a lot to learn, and we hope that you get out and experience it. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Sally. You can view a list of all upcoming Alabama Bicentennial events at Huntsville.org. And lastly, Team Rubicon is a global non-governmental organization founded by two U.S. Marines. Groups of their 105,000 volunteers travel all over the world to help out when perilous, life-threatening acts of nature strike. Egg Carr, the Alabama State Ambassador from Decatur, stops in for a chat on the nonprofit's inner workings and how he transitioned from marine life to working for the organization's Southeast chapter.
I came across Team Rubicon around 2010, right after they responded, their first initial response to the earthquake in Haiti. And they formed, and then they um, started advertising. And I picked up on them and said, hey, that sounds like a thing I want to join because I I like doing international aid work. And um, they seemed like the ones that would do that. And so I want to know, how did you get to be the Alabama State Administrator? Well, I started in in New Mexico, where I was living at the time, and then uh, there wasn't a whole lot of natural disasters in New Mexico, thank goodness, and so I didn't respond. But when I moved here a couple years ago, I um, wanted to expand my role and do more, so I deployed uh, several times. And during those deployments for natural disasters, they were mostly tornadoes, I came to understand that I wanted to do more in the organization, so I became a city coordinator, and then I was offered the position of state administrator. What are some of your duties as state administrator for Alabama? I'm responsible for trying to recruit new people into Team Rubicon, training them once we've got them aboard, and then making sure they have the right equipment. This organization is volunteer-based, and about 80% of them have military experience that they're bringing to the table What about the other 20%? You know, what sort of people do you look for when you want to recruit folks to come on? That's a great question, Katie, because although we are primarily a veterans-based organization, Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of veterans uh, because they want to continue to serve after their military careers. But we also have 20, 25% uh, we call kick-ass civilians uh, (laughs) who uh, volunteer to to go out in disaster areas. A good percentage of that are first responders, actually. And then there are just some people that just are called to serve and want to do what we do. I also read that there are 105,000 volunteers total. Is that right? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So (laughs) I want to know what the recruitment process is like and the training process. Recruitment process is really easy. You just go to teamrubiconusa.org. Uh, all one word, and uh, volunteer to participate in Team Rubicon. And from there, you can do further training, uh, the minimum training to deploy. Because when we, we talk about deployment, it's actually going to a disaster area. You can do things at home, from home. Th- those that can't actually leave home, there are ways to serve from home. Let's say there's a crisis or a tornado. There's usually a phone bank or a call center that's activated to respond to the needs of the survivors who want help. And our guys can be tapped into that so they can respond from home. But if but to deploy, actually go to a disaster area, there's some online training. And uh, we also include in that training what's called instant command system training, ICS system. In order for us to comply with FEMA and the National Incident Command System, we do some training, some additional training, which, which really separates us from a lot of disaster response organizations in that we comply with the Incident Command System, ICS system, which FEMA is a part of. And so that way, when we go into a disaster area, we can immediately connect with the first responders and FEMA, if they're there, right off the bat. And then if you want to do further training, uh, we have what's called core operations, which is how to tarp a roof or how to do expeditious home repair. Uh, so there's lots of hands-on training that is follow-on training to the initial training. So I was thinking about the more localized emergencies. What sort of experiences do you have that you can call back on in your memory about maybe some more localized disasters that you've helped out with? They fall into two categories. One is uh, mitigation recovery, which are the kind of the before to get a community ready for a disaster. And then recovery is 
maybe long-term recovery afterwards. And then there's the immediate response to a disaster. So for the first part of that, uh, mitigation and recovery, uh, we can go into a community and what we do a service project. Let's say there's an area that's prone to flooding that we can cut down some trees or we can rearrange some stuff and help the community avoid a disaster. And then recovery is, let's say, six months after a disaster happens and there's still a lot of trees down, they're still causing the community to not recover completely from the disaster. So we might go in and do a service project where we, where we cut some trees down. We did that here in Decatur, actually, uh, about a year ago, where there were still some trees down in the community from a straight line wind event that happened there. And the community still needed, needed some assistance. So we went in and, and did a lot of chainsaw work for homeowners who either were underinsured or uninsured, or they were too frail or elderly or didn't have the equipment to be able to cut up some big trees. Down in Lee County and Beauregard, we responded to the tornado that hit them. They, I think they lost 23 lives. Mm-hmm. And so we sent a, a full-blown operation down there, help with people recovering, do some expeditious home repair, that kind of thing. I want to go back and talk about Hurricane Dorian because that's the most recent disaster that you guys helped out with. It destroyed, you know, like you said, Avoco in the Bahamas and parts of Puerto Rico and parts of Florida. So what sort of things go through your head like once you first get there? Uh, the average Team Rubicon gray shirt, what we call a gray shirt because we wear gray shirts, right. is uh, action-oriented. And so we have to kind of rein them back a little bit because they want to get out there and do stuff. And we'll organize all that and we'll get ready for them. And then they, when they arrive, we want to get them working right away. Uh, usually we're in a very austere conditions. It's a sleeping bag and a cot. The next morning after they've gotten there, usually they're put into strike teams and they're sent out in the field. And they, of course, immediately respond to the homeowners. Uh, When I was down in uh, Florida uh, for the hurricane there, uh, we were driving on a road and this uh, little old lady had a rake. She had trees down and she had all this debris and she had a rake and she was raking up, you know, like three leaves at a time in her yard. And we stopped and we said, ma'am, can you you need some help? And she said, yes, I could use some help. And so we had a team of, you know, eight people just descend on her and just clean everything up. And the, the appreciation on her face is, is really the reward for us. It's, it's that gratitude and the knowledge that, that we're helping somebody that just really can't help themselves. And so we, we gravitate to that kind of person, you know, the, the uninsured or underinsured who we know can't afford to get this stuff done. Let's talk about the tail end of a disaster. You know, they've put the gray shirt on. They've gone and, you know, helped during this this disastrous time and help people out. When do they know when it's time to go home? Well, we actually mandate that because um, we found that physically and emotionally, the toll is pretty great. So every seven days, we force our gray shirts to take a day off because it is so uh, mentally and physically exhausting because you're, you're in a strange environment. You're probably in an unair-conditioned room somewhere, sleeping on a cot, eating food you're not used to eating, and so we want them to recharge their batteries and go home. Once you're a gray shirt, you're, you're kind of always a gray shirt. <laughs> and the gray shirt is kind of our badge of honor because it's given to only people that deploy. When we deploy, we deploy from all over. So when a disaster strikes, we'll put out a call to all our members that are in 450 miles and say, do you want to deploy? And then if we get enough responses, we'll say, okay, we're going to deploy you. And then they'll get notified. And then if it's large enough outside of 450 miles, then National Team Rubicon gets involved and they will actually fly people in. So what's the response like when you send out those text messages saying, would you like to deploy? It depends on where it is, when it is. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of our people work, 
it's difficult for them to take off. Mm-hmm. And then when we have a thing like when Florence and Michael hit, some people are retired like me and uh, can go pretty much anytime. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have other commitments. But when we expand in scope to a national level operation, we were in Mexico Beach in Panama City for months. And we were able to have 100 to 200 people there all the time doing work because, one, there was so much work. And two, when we brought it to our national response, then we, we can fly people in and we get a really great response that way. In the Southeast Territory, I think we have about 15,000 gray shirts. There's about 1,000 in Alabama. And so we rely on those for the smaller ones. And then when it grows bigger, then we ask national to step in and, and start bringing people in. Do you have an example of some sort of incredulous, amazing story of restoration for somebody who was a homeowner or a business owner that you have helped basically rebuild everything that they had in the first place? Normally, we see people on their worst day, and it's just the immediate impact. They're usually in shock. And one of the great stories of down in Florida for the hurricane, one of our team members was out doing site surveys to see where we needed to go. And he came upon this lady who was in a double wide, and there were trees down all over her yard. One was across her front porch. And when they drove up, they stopped and they got out and she crawled out of her front door and underneath the tree and off the porch. And uh, when we showed up and uh, cleared all the debris off her yard and you know uncovered her front door, she was so grateful. And, and that was uh, a huge reward for us. Is there anything else that you think that our listeners should know about Team Rubicon or the tribe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the tribe. The tribe. Uh, tribe is capital T, R, capital R. Capital T, capital R. It is a unique environment. It mm-hmm. is very, very go-getter kind of environment. And as you can imagine, with a, a large military presence, so it's kind of military-focused. There is a lot of military jargon we use. Um, but the focus is on the people in the communities that we serve. That's what I tell people. If you want to go out and serve a community and go into a disaster response, there really isn't a better organization to do that. Uh, You'll feel safe, you'll feel welcome, and you'll feel like you're doing something good. If you're interested in volunteering with the tribe, you can apply at teamrubiconusa.org. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway, with producer Brett Tannehill. Thanks to community newsroom producer Dan Paulus, Energy Alabama's Daniel Tate, Team Rubicon's Egg Carr, the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee's Sally Warden, and the Big Pond Podcast. If you want more Public Radio Hour, we've got you covered. Our past homemade programs are located in our online archives at wlrh.org. Click the Programs tab, then the Public Radio Hour, and binge to your heart's content. If you dig what we do here, let us know with a pledge of support at wlrh.org. Any amount counts, and we love to hear from you. It helps us make better content for your listening enjoyment. See you on the flip side, muchachos, next Thursday night at 7.00.